Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be in your company. Great to be able to share this beautiful day with you and spend some time telling you some things or talking to you about some stuff that has to do with Judaism 101.9. And today, perhaps a little bit different to what we're used to on this show, we're going to be discussing three great figures, three great people about which um, you may or you may not know, but not sort of, let's call it the usual um, people that get discussed in uh, this program of Judaism 101.9, but perhaps um, to bring out some very, very important factors about their uh, significant lives and the significant works that they wrote. And I'm going to be discussing today or referring to three people, and they are, number one, Rabbi Mordechai ben Hillel, Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel, and a man by the name of Onkelos. So let's go through. Once again, Rabbi Mordechai ben Hillel, Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel, and Onkelos. And if you're trying to think about if there's a connection between them, well, <coughs> the primary connection is they're great Torah scholars. They, <coughs> oh, excuse me. They gave us great Torah insights, and they all are great contributors to the wealth of Torah knowledge that we have today. But let's begin by talking about Rabbi Mordechai ben Hillel, always known or also known as Rabbi Mordechai ben Hillel Ashkenazi. And by the way, this man is also known just as the Mordechai. And the Mordechai is a commentary that he wrote, the work that he wrote. Um, and very often great characters in Jewish history and in Jewish thinking took on sort of the code name of the work that they did. So he chose to name his work the Mordechai. And his work actually appears in every Talmud. If you go and you take a look in the Talmud, one of the great commentators is known as the Mordechai. So let's think about or talk about why we're talking about him today. And that's because, believe it or not, today is his Yorzeit. He passed away on this date, the 22nd of Av, in the year 1298. But his story is a fascinating one. And his life is a fascinating one. And his passing, his death, was fascinating as well, albeit very cruel, very difficult, and uh, uh, very, very disgusting, let's say. Because when we talk about the Mordechai, we think more about his great work. But believe it or not, this man only lived to be 48 years old, or so it's thought. Supposedly born in 1250, um, passed away in 1298. Now, we therefore are going back, of course, over 700 years um, to uh, investigate who the Mordechai was. Well, his name was Mordechai ben Hillel. And he lived at a time when there were terrible, terrible persecutions, pogroms. Um, he would have seen more pogroms on earth than uh, most people who lived at any time. And um, he happened to be particularly in a most famous city by the name of Nuremberg. Nuremberg, yes, famous for its connection with the Nazis and famous for its connection with 
the Nuremberg trials, which were Dafka held in that place, <coughs> which symbolized the Nazi power of uh, those terrible, terrible Holocaust years. But he lived at a time before the Nazis ever came into being. But we have to say and we have to see that, in fact, that was fertile ground. It was the soil of Nuremberg, Germany. And um, at the time was uh, now going back to the 12th, uh, the, the 13th century when the Mordechai, Rabbi Mordechai ben Hillel actually lived, that there was all of this undercurrent and this terrible, terrible outpouring of venomous hatred and cruelty towards um, the Jewish people at the time. Now, the Mordechai was a disciple of the great Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg. And he actually had the honor of giving his decisions in the presence of his master, which was a privilege that was granted only to very, very few. Now, what had happened was uh, Rabbi Meir Rottenberg was actually imprisoned and held for ransom. And actually nothing could be done to help him because that was his request. He didn't want anybody to spend any money or time or effort or energy in getting him out of that imprisonment. And this great uh, Mordechai then moved to a town called Goslar, a city in central Germany. However, he had there a, an individual by the name of Moshe Tako, who would stop at nothing in trying to get the Mordechai, Rabbi Mordechai, out of town. And in fact, it developed into a rift that was irreparable. And the Mordechai, or Rabbi Mordechai, then went to Nuremberg. And many, many people flocked from all over the world, from France, from Italy, from Spain, Austria, Bohemia, Hungary. They all came to learn, to study at the feet of this great man, Rabbi Mordechai. And he, for seven years, built his great academy. But then a terrible catastrophe befell them all. Happened after the death of the Emperor Rudolf of Habsburg, when his son Albrecht had to fight against another pretender to the throne, Prince Adolf of Nassau. Isn't it amazing how these names kept on coming up? And lawlessness, disorder ruled the day. But, of course, as was usual, the Jewish people came out on the losing side, as they very often did, of this terrible, terrible rift. And we'll talk a little bit more about that after this. But Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So we've been talking about Rabbi Mordechai ben Hillel Ashkenazi, whose yard site it is today, um, and describing or trying to get into the uh, terrible, terrible uh, a sequence of events that actually led to his demise at the tender age of 48, the young age of 48, and a man who contributed so much and wrote brilliant commentary. And any uh, Talmudic scholar will tell you his the brilliance of uh, the Mordechai, quoted by so many of the greats, uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Rabbi Moshe Isolus, and so on. They quote, they base a lot of what they say on um, his great insight. Now, tragedy befell the Jews of Germany at the hands of a notorious individual by the name of Rindfleisch. He was a fanatical Jew beta. He lived in Franconia in Germany. And although he was a member of an aristocratic family, and of course, the word aristocrat probably needs some kind of redefinition very often, he became a head of a great mob 
of uh, real hoodlums who left a trail of blood through the southern part of Germany in uh, the towards the end of the 13th century, and over 100,000 Jews were murdered. 100,000 Jews lost their lives at the hand of this Rindfleisch. He first appeared in the town of uh, Rüttingen, Rüttingen in Franconia, where a rumor was spread that the Jews had desecrated a church. He gathered a mob around him and proceeded to wage a battle that he said was a mission from heaven to kill all the Jews in order to avenge this desecration. So they attacked the whole uh, Jewish community of that place. Then they swept through um, parts of Germany, going from town to town, murdering and robbing all the defenseless Jewish communities. And then in the spring and the summer of that year, one of the most harrowing events of Jewish history took place. His mob grew rapidly, and it attacked large and small communities alike because the authorities um, offered absolutely no protection to the Jews. Now, when he finally reached Nuremberg, and remember that was where Rabbi Mordechai was, the Jews, they put up a real um, fight, a heroic defense, and they were helped by some of the citizens of uh, the non-Jewish citizens of Nuremberg. Um, <clears throat> but they were then offered a deal um, were you to accept the faith of the attackers, Christianity, um, they would have been spared, but they um, actually succumbed because um, they did not want to do that, fought heroically, fought for their faith, and at the end of that battle, 628 martyrs had died. Among them, Rabbi Mordechai ben Hillel, his wife Zelda, and their five children. Um, his work remained for us um, as a testament to what a great an incredible mind he had, what a great and incredible depth of knowledge he had, and his book called The Sefer HaMordechai, the book of the Mordechai, was published after his death by his disciples, and two groups were formed um, to publish various editions, known as the Rhenish and the Austrian versions, respectively. Um, the Rhenish is the shorter of the two, and uh, today we are left with this incredible work of this great man, whose yard site we commemorate today, dying as he did together with his family in the most heinous and the most ter terrible of circumstances in something called a pogrom, which the Jewish people became unfortunately synonymous with or uh, synonymous with being the recipients, uh, the victims of these terrible pogroms. This one in the year 1298 and on this day. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning, we're going to now take a look and put under the spotlight two other um, greats of yesteryear. Two other great people and great commentators and great people who's, uh, without whom we probably would not have much meaning at all to a lot of our written Torah and a lot of our oral Torah as well. And the first one that we're going to speak about is a man called Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel. Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel, who is most famous for something known as the Targum Yonason. Now, we know that the word Targum means a translation. Yonason ben Uziel provided a translation in a time, a translation of Torah, that is, in a time when there wasn't any other translation into Aramaic, 
And remember, Aramaic was the language that everybody spoke. And while today we possibly know the next person we're going to discuss, Unculus, we possibly know his a little bit better, the Targum of Yonasan ben Uziel was a great and wondrous in its time. And the great and famous sage Hillel um, had 80 most distinguished disciples. The great Hillel. So we're putting this into the uh, historical con- uh, context. Hillel had 80 most distinguished disciples. 30 of them were said to be worthy to enjoy the divine presence as Moshe did. Another 30 were said to be great enough to have stopped the sun in its path as Yeshua did. And the remaining 20 were in the middle. Now think about it. This is the way that um, our sages describe. 30 of them were worthy to enjoy the divine presence as Moshe Rabbeinu did, as Moses did. Another 30 were said to be great enough to have stopped the sun in its path as Joshua did, as Yeshua did. And the remaining 20 were in the middle. The greatest of all Hillel's disciples was Yonas and Ben Uziel. The smallest, if we could think about it in those terms, among them was Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai, who was familiar with all the hidden secrets of the Torah. So imagine the spread that we're talking about here, the greatest of the disciples of the great sage Hillel, about whom it was said that he was amongst the group, of course, who were worthy to enjoy the divine presence as Moshe Rabbeinu did. So our sages described Rabbi uh, Yonason ben Uziel in these incredible terms. And they tell us that when Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel was busy studying the whole Torah, holy Torah, a bird flying over him at that moment would be burnt. So powerful was the spiritual energy that he created. Anything flying into that path would just be burnt up. It would be disintegrated. The great sage Shammai, who was the Av Betin, the chief justice, if you wish, at that time, he had a very, very high opinion of Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel. And the Talmud mentions a case where Shammai came to discuss a point of law with him. It happened uh, that a rich Jew had willed all his possessions to Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel as his own children. Unfortunately, he felt did not live up to the standard that he was expecting of them. So he left his great fortune to Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel. What did Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel do when he inherited such a large fortune? He retained a third of it. He donated a third to the Beis Migdash, and the other third he gave back to the heirs. Those heirs who were supposedly not of uh, the kind of caliber that the father wanted to leave the money to. Um, now, Shammai approached Rabbi Anderson ben Uziel to question his right to return the third of the money to the heirs against the wishes of their father. Rabbi Anderson ben Uziel did not agree to Shammai's objections. He argued that if he was the rightful owner of the property to donate part of it to the Beis Hamikdash, he had the same right to return part of it to the heirs because he could do with the inheritance as he pleased. And Shammai was forced to admit that Rabbi Anderson ben Uziel was right. Rabbi Anderson ben Uziel, of course, then became especially famous through his interpretation of the Torah called Targum Yonason that he left us. And remember, he lived at the time of the temple, a time this is going to be relevant for something that we're going to bring out a little bit later. He lived at a time when um, 
prophecy was something that one could see and that he had the divine presence in his midst. It was the time of the Beis Amigdash, the time of the temple, where there was that miraculousness that um, uh, took place on earth, where God's home on earth was here and people could live and uh, bask in that glory um, at all times. This was the time of Rabbi Yonis and Ben Uziel. Our sages tell us that when Rabbi Yonis and Ben Uziel wrote his commentary on the prophets, <clears throat> the Holy Land trembled. And a heavenly voice called out, who's dared to reveal my secrets to mortal men? And Rabbi Yonis and Ben Uziel then arose and said, I am the one responsible for revealing your holy secrets to mankind, do, but not to do myself honor, nor the glory of my ancestors, but solely that the Jews may understand um, what the prophets have told them. And they then tell us that when he intended to write an interpretation on the Ksuvim, the holy writings, the third, third part of the Tanakh, we have Torah, Nevi'im, Ksuvim, he was forbidden to do so because we're told that those secrets should only be revealed when Mashiach will come. But nevertheless, we're left with the Targum Yonason, which is insightful and it gives us a, a an insight, of course, into several words in Torah. We're going to discuss one of those a little bit later on. But when we think about words in Torah without the Targum, without this translation, we actually could be or could have been at a loss. If we think about the greats like Rashi and so on, they continually have to refer back and they do refer to the Targum, to these translations in order to elucidate, in order to elaborate, in order to truly understand the depth and the meaning of a Hebrew word. Let's begin discussing Onkelos. Now, this was a little bit later during the period when the Jews suffered under the hated Emperor Hadrian, in other words, Roman rule, um, who had quelled the revolution of Bar Kokhba, where the city of Beitar was raised, and uh, this was the time of Rabbi Akiva. Um, there was a bright star that uh, lights up the Jewish heavens even until this day that arose at that time. And we're talking about a man by the name of Unculus, who translated the Torah into Aramaic, a translation known today as Targum Unculus. If you take a look at any good chumash, you will have <coughs> the Targum Unculus running in Aramaic on the inner column. So sort of on the left-hand side, if you're on the right-hand page, on the right-hand side, if you're on the left-hand page, there is always that um, Targum, that translation into Aramaic. And this is uh, printed, of course, as we said, in most good chumashim. Um, it's also known as being so holy that when we uh, review the uh, parsha, as we're supposed to do every Shabbos, we review it twice in the Chumash and once in the Targum. Now, who was this Unculus? Where did he come from? Unculus was actually a member, believe it or not, of a Roman royal family. His mother actually was Hadrian's sister, and his father was called Clonicus. Unculus was a very educated man well-versed in all the Roman and Greek cultures, um, and he had a, a very, very clear head, an exceptional brain, and he really, really had a very, very lofty soul and a pure heart, and he soon realized that the idolatry that pervaded at the time was um, really foolish, and um, he took to Yiddishkeit, he took to Judaism. On the quiet, he began to serve God, he began to keep uh, Torah and mitzvahs and so on, 
And he once came to his uncle Hadrian and he said, for many years, I've been poring over books and manuscripts, studying until I've become familiar with all the languages and sciences. But what do I gain from it all? It's time for me to go out into the world and start doing business. You know that I'm not familiar with worldly things, whereas you, the great Roman emperor, are well-versed in worldly affairs. I therefore come to ask your advice as to what kind of material I should buy and sell. Now, Hadrian was really, really flattered that his wise nephew had come to ask his advice, and he thought deeply, and he said, My kingly riches are at your disposal. Take as much money as you need for business. I'd advise you to seek material that's extremely cheap due to the fact that people don't realize it's worth, material that few, few people are looking for. You'll be able to buy it cheaply, and after explaining its real value to people, you'll be able to make a nice profit. Unculus, the prince, then left the royal palace. He traveled to Rome, from Rome, started out for Jerusalem, the land of Judah. Once there, he took upon himself the religion of the persecuted Jews, and he converted he became a disciple of Rabbi Eleazar ben Hukrenus and Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah, the great Tannaim, who were disciples of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He gave himself over entirely to the study of the Torah, and his perseverance and dedication were so great that his teachers actually became concerned about his health, but Unculus continued learning day and night until he became well-versed in every one of the secrets of the Torah that he could possibly um, ingest. This was what Unculus actually did. In fact, he took to heart the fact that many Jews during the Babylonian exile had forgotten their holy language and had started speaking Babylonian, Ashdodic, Aramaic, different types of dialects. And when the Jews returned from the Babylonian exile, Ezra, the scribe, translated the Torah into Aramaic so that everybody would be able to understand it. But that translation was lost. Unculus now decided to translate the Torah into Aramaic once more, according to the explanations that were handed down from generation to generation through Ezra and back to Moshe. And this is the translation that we know of today as the Targum Unculus. Now, after a short while, Hadrian found out that his nephew had accepted Yiddishkeit and become one of the most foremost Jewish scholars. The emperor was beside himself with rage, and he sent soldiers to arrest Unculus and bring him in chains to Rome. We'll continue with the story right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So uh, the Unculus, this great um, Roman actually who had converted to Judaism, um, was called for by his um, uncle who was the Roman emperor and he was summoned back to Rome or sent for, and uh, they actually wanted to um, execute him. They wanted to get rid of him. But there was a fascinating story about what happened each time the uh, people were sent to try and pick him up, to try and bring him back. But to cut a long story short, Unculus remains one of the greats of Jewish history, one of the greats of Jewish liturgy, and one of the greats in the translation of the Torah to make it all that much more understandable for us. Now, why it's important to bring up these great translations of Torah, particularly in this week, is because we actually have a very, very fascinating discussion right at the beginning of the portion of Torah that we're going to be reading on this coming Shabbat, Parshat Re'eh. 
where we are told at the beginning of the parsha, parsha Re'ei, Re'ei Anochi Noten Lifnechem Hayom Bracha Uklala, which means, see, behold, look, I'm giving to you today a blessing and a curse. Now there is a fascinating discussion, a fascinating discrepancy between the way that the Targum Yonasan and Unculus translate that word Klala. Klala usually translated as a curse. Now why do we lead ourselves to actually thinking that this must be a blessing and a curse because we've got Bracha Uklala. So automatically our minds switch to the idea of a, uh, a positive and a negative or something and its opposite. So we've got here Bracha and Klala. Now, we think we all know, and I guess we do, what a bracha is, what a bracha is. Bracha, classically, is a blessing. What is a blessing? A blessing doesn't only mean a pronouncement of may it be good with you, but it actually is, from a spiritual point of view, it is the channel through which God gives us the things or the uh, sustenance or the wherewithal or the health and so on that we hope and we pray for. That is what we call a blessing. When you bless somebody, you're actually accessing that um, wellspring of uh, that fount of beautiful, wonderful, um, uh, uh, flourishing greatness that you want to be thrust upon that person, and you're accessing it, and you're enabling it to come into being. This is the concept of a blessing. A blessing is, of course, something very positive. Of course, it's something that we all want. But the idea of it is the excess of good and fantastic and wonderful things that we hope and pray Hashem will shower us, us with. Now, ordinarily, when we think about the word klala, we think about a curse, the opposite. So can you bring about the demise of somebody, something negative that should come to, to somebody? Can we access that? Well, you know, Targum Unculus, Unculus translates it as a curse. He takes it as a curse, meaning that there is negativity, that there is the opposite of blessing that actually happens here. But the interesting thing is when we look at the way that it's translated by the Targum Yonason, the Targum Yonason can't even bring himself, he doesn't even bring himself to say the word Klala um, as a curse, but he rather says Klala as a Chilufa. Chilufa meaning a substitute, a substitute. Now, what is the meaning behind the difference, or what can we actually learn from the difference between the way that Targum Unculus looks at the word klala, a curse, and the way Targum Yonasan looks at the way curse, and perhaps a very, very important lesson that we can learn for ourselves, not only today, but in this strange and wondrous time that we're actually living through. Be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. We're discussing the word klala in terms of the way that it is viewed by Unculus and the way that it is viewed by the Targum Yonason. Now, the Targum Yonason, we've got to remember, was written in temple times. The Targum Unculus was written after temple times, the Targum Unculus was written in the times of uh, the, the, the Golis, the times of exile. And if we just put that there as our first 
uh, point of call as our first rider here, we can perhaps develop the following thought, and that is that if we think about the fact that nothing bad can ever come from God, it's very, very difficult sometimes for us to be able to see that. And one of the manifestations of exile is that that is limited. The idea and the ideal of being able to see the goodness that comes from God within everything that to us seems to be negative is limited to us. Yes, we're blessed with very often the uh, the vision of after the fact, but to be able to actually perceive it, to actually see it, no, we are limited in that realm. However, the time of temple times when godliness was visible on earth, it was manifest. People were able to see the revealed goodness within everything, even the things that appeared to be negative. And so base yourself or think about now Targum Yonason. Yonason writing at temple times thinks about and sees only good. He, re- he sees something that people could term a curse, but he realizes that no, it's the chilufa. It is just the substitute for the blessing. It is not actually a curse in and of itself. Uncleus, who lived in diaspora times, just like we do, um, can be forgiven for having seen things in a way of negativity and hoping and praying that when Mashiach will come, will have returned to us the opportunity to be able to see everything for actually, actually for what it is and never have the thought that anything negative can ever come about in God's world. And therefore, on this special Shabbos, as we think about these two great Targums, these two great translations, let's perhaps hope and pray that we too will be able to see the, because it is Parshatra A, the Parsha where we hope that we'll be able to see. Let's take a look and see all the goodness that is within God's world and realize that only good comes from the Almighty. Anything that we deem to be negative is just actually a replacement, a substitute for the blessing. It is not actually a curse. Hopefully we'll be able to get our heads around that one. We'll be able to see it clearly and in tribute to the three great people that we have spoken about today. I want to wish you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead, and look forward to being back with you again, same time, same place, next week on Judaism 101.9.